You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Listen up. If you're a business owner, and I know a number of you are, you do not need to tell us that running a business is tough. I know this. But you might be making it tougher on yourself than you have to. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It is time to upgrade. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. You need to stop paying for multiple systems that do not give you the information you need when you need it. Now would be a great time to ditch the spreadsheets and all that old software that you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. It's the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need all in one place instantaneously. So whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in revenue, you can save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 21,000 companies that are using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash roam. Schedule your free product tour right now. Go to netsuite.com slash roam, netsuite.com slash R-O-M-E. The first person that called me was Devin George. Hey, Shaq said he's going to beat Kobe up tomorrow morning as soon as on site when he sees him. And he was like, kiss the wife and kids. You're the only one that can get down here and put a stop to this. And then I got a call later on from Phil Jackson asking me if I could come down and try to get those two together. Hey now, what's going on? Welcome to episode 165 of the Jim Rome Podcast. I'm absolutely hyped for this one. My guest this week is a head coach in the G League. He's a 14-year NBA vet. He has a fist for jewelry. Three rings as a player, two more as an assistant coach. He is an Oakland legend, but all of that pales in comparison to this. Brian Shaw is straight up UC Santa Barbara royalty, a gaucho king. Don't believe me? Check out his 1988 Big West Player of the Year award. If you think I'm biased because we went to the same college at the same time, then you would be right. I don't care. I cannot wait to talk to B. Shaw, so I'm not going to. Episode 165 of the Jim Rome Podcast starts right now. First off, much, much respect. Gaucho fam, Brian, it's been a minute. It is so good to get caught up with you. First things first, bring me up to date. How are you and your family holding up during these most unusual and challenging times? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, You know, it is an unusual and challenging time, as you said, and we're doing the best that we can. Um, We've been, you know, maintaining and just trying to pivot and adapt, uh, you know, when we've had to, to you know, just, just make it, um, and, and, and deal with whatever comes our way, you know? So it's, 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 like you said, been challenging for everyone out there, not just me and my family. We're, we're cognizant of that, uh, that fact. And like I said, just, just trying to pivot, you know, every time there's a monkey wrench thrown in the road, we just try to pivot and get around with it and adapt to whatever we need to, to, uh, to make things happen. All right, then. There's so many things that I want to talk to you about and get caught up on, but let me first ask you about the latest thing that you've embarked upon. Now, you played and coached in the NBA for 30-plus years. You've got five championship rings, three as a player, two more as a coach. I mean, pretty much you've seen everything and done everything, and now you're coaching in the NBA G League with the Ignite. What did you like about that opportunity, and what's that been like for you? You know, it, it's been a it's been a great experience. It's been challenging at times, um, you know, and a lot of that has to do, like I said, with the pandemic and the protocol that goes along with that. But the thing that was intriguing to me was, um, you know, the fact that you know there's this elite talent that's out there. Um, you know, obviously, my days at UCSB were some of the greatest days and memories that um, that that I, in my entire life. You know, and I enjoy college, and college was for me. But for a lot of guys, um, you know, college is not the way that they want to go. And so, um, you know, when Sharif Abdur Rahim, who's the president of the G League, reached out to me 
um, and, and shared his vision with me and, and, and uh, his vision and Adam Silver's vision of, in terms of giving these young elite players who were probably going to be one and done in college anyway uh, a, a different option or an alter- alternative route to get to the NBA um, and what it was going to be about in terms of sprinkling in some veterans uh, along with them and just preparing them and teaching them how to be professionals on and off the court. Um, and me being able to kind of script the program the way that I saw fit um, based on my experiences of, of developing young players over the years, um, it was a situation that I didn't think that I could pass up. And, um, and I'm glad that I made this decision um, I'm enjoying the coaching aspect of it and, and the ability to be able to impact uh, some of these young, talented, elite players, and hopefully these relationships uh, will last a lifetime. All right, so I want to ask you about one or two of those guys in a minute, but right now you're coming down to the end of the regular season. You're in that bubble once again. Let me ask you this. When it comes to the Ignite, is it postseason or bust or maybe, Brian, is winning and losing not really what it's all about for you and this group? Yeah, from the very beginning, um, I made it very clear that it wasn't about, you know, winning and losing for us. Um, You know, we're a unique team, um, and although we have the G League title, we're not a G League team. Um, From our salary structure and just the way that we do everything, uh, having these young guys on the team, um, you know, we're different. We don't have a parent team like these other G League teams. Um, You know, the NBA as a league is our parent team. And, and so, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that everybody understood that if it was about the development of these young guys and putting them in situations that they're going to face on the court and getting that experience of getting through them, you know, succeeding in some areas, failing in other areas, but being able to bounce back from that, that it couldn't be based on uh, wins and losses. And to be quite honest with you, I didn't know if we would win a game uh, wow. before we got here just based on the talent level this year, especially this year with the pandemic, a lot of the, uh, there's a lot of NBA players that are here that didn't get to go overseas and play um, because of the pandemic, um, you know, what have you. And so it made the pool of players and the talent level even richer um, here, you know, here in, in, in the G league bubble. And so, when you look at, you know, we have five guys on our team that are, you know, 18 and 19 years old, just, just, just fresh out of high school, and then basically uh, three ex-NBA players that were kind of at the end of their NBA careers sprinkled in with a couple of other G League vets, um, knowing that our young guys were going to get a big chunk of minutes uh, in these games, and then these G League guys are hungry, right? They 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 they're coming at you uh, like you're taking food off their table while while they're trying to put food on their table, um, you know. So preparing these guys for this, um, it it's that part, you know, getting them to understand that has been challenging, but um, they have, to their credit, they have stood their ground. They have embraced the coaching that they get that they've been getting. They have been up to the challenge, um, and so right now we are seven and five. We have three games remaining. You know, so w- we win one game out of these three games remaining. We will we'll finish over eight hundred, uh, over five hundred. Um, we're I think in sixth or seventh place right now, and out of the eighteen teams that are here, the top eight will go to the playoffs. So. Um, if we make the playoffs, that's great. That'll, that'll be a cherry on top. But um, they've already surpassed any expectations that I, I had or any of the other people involved in this process uh, have, have had. Um, and I think that all of our guys have, young guys, have showed that they're worthy of the, the notoriety that they've gotten um, and even put placed themselves in a better position when it comes to where they're going to be drafted. Listen, I know why you're there, and I can hear it even in that response. I mean, you're there 
well, to teach them a number of things and to mentor them, but you're there to teach them how to be pros and how to act like a pro and what to expect. But then, Brian, I, I can remember when you and I were in Santa Barbara at the same time, you were already acting like that. Now, maybe as a 20-year-old, you didn't know what you know now, of course, but you just carried yourself in a very different manner. And that's why I, I'm, I'm so hyped to hear you say that when you think about your time in Santa Barbara, that it was one of the best times of your life. Because, I mean, I want to talk about your NBA career for sure, but we were there at the same time, and I consider that one of the greatest times of my entire life and I mean that in large part because of what you and your teammates did for that program and for that school for instance I could not be more proud to rep Gaucho Nation even in my 50s the way I do right now and my time there as a student and when I began my career afterwards was some of the greatest times of my life I'm curious about you I mean you put that basketball program on the map what were your two years like for you what does your time as a Gaucho represent to you well you know, like I said, the greatest, you know, memories um, and the funnest times that I've had, the most fun times that I've had, you know, I'm 54, I'll be 55 this month. Um, and, I mean, those were my, you know, my best days. And, you know, make no mistake about it. One thing that is very different is that I don't, like, I carry myself in a different way but it was at one point when I came and I had a kind of a come to Jesus moment with uh, with our athletic director because, um, you know, as a young kid, I was doing a lot of things that young kids who have responsibility for the first time living on their own uh, in a dorm setting or an apartment setting. And you know how much of a party school Santa Barbara is and was. Um Thank God at that time there was no social media, internet, um, camera phones, you know, or anything like that. Because right. Things that, that I was able to get away with then, um, you know, you can't get away with in this day and age. But um, just the understanding that, you know, what made it great for me being at UCSB was it wasn't, you know, first of all, the reputation of the school academically is, you know, it speaks for itself in terms of public university um, and where it ranks and where it stands. But the biggest lessons that I got, um, I understood, didn't necessarily come from the things that I learned uh, in the textbooks there when I went to when I went to class. Um, it was the relationships that I was able to form that to this day uh, still remain solid. And those life lessons that I learned having to negotiate uh, situations that I got myself into and people that, you know, that I um, rubbed elbows with um, that exposed me to a different, you know, I came from Oakland, which was, you know, predominantly I was around black people before I came, mostly black people when I came to college. And I got to Santa Barbara and there was, you know, as you know, there was, I think at that time, around 18,000 undergraduate school students, and there was only 300 blacks in the whole school. Mm. So that was culture shock, and it was something different, but it helped me to, you know, to relate to how things were going to be going forward. Um, and then when you succeed in a situation like that, and obviously it helps you, um, you know, it helps you going forward. Um, but, but I think I exposed what I was all about and what I came from to people that hadn't been subjected to being around anybody like me. And I got that back and uh, I got that back. Uh, that was reciprocated, you know, the other way around as well. And so the being able to balance playing basketball, having fun, but also taking care of responsibility in terms of uh, getting your school work done and graduating, um, you know, getting that degree, which is what I went there for in the first place. Um, you know, I was able to check all of those boxes um, and enjoy myself while I was doing it. So anybody out there who's listening that has a chance to go to a school like UCSB, and I know you would vouch for that, uh, that's, that's, that's where it's at. And Brian, not only would I vouch for that, me and all my friends laugh about how none of us would ever get in today the way we did back then. <laughs> we could never get in. I'm curious, can you remind me, who who was the AD that you had that come-to-Jesus moment with, and maybe can you share what he told you? Um, his name was Stan Morrison. You bet. He had come, he had come from uh, USC. And um, I was, you know, I was hanging out with some friends of mine, you know, like I said, doing some things that I probably shouldn't have been doing. 
that are actually in this day and age, they're actually they're legal now. Um, I let that speak for itself. And, um, you know, he basically, you know, the word had got around that, um, that I was smoking weed and he pulled me into his office and he said, Hey, um, you have a real chance to make it at the next level and you have to make a decision right now, whether you want to be a guy that's going to waste that talent and the possibility of going to the next level, um, or if you're going to be serious and, and give it everything that you have to try to get there, um, and you got to decide whether that's more important to you, what you're doing when you're hanging out with your friends, you know, um, in Isla Vista, doing that where people are seeing you openly and, you know, can, uh, uh, you know, say they saw you doing this or that, or if you want to put that off because that can always be there and just give everything that you have to, to trying to make it to the next level. And so it really made me, that resonated with me. And at that moment, I pretty much had to make a decision and decided to kind of, you know, put that down um, and leave that alone. And, and, you know, and my friends that I was hanging around with and doing that with, you know, I have to commend them, too, because they recognize, they said, you know what, he was right, and you do have a chance. We don't, but you do. So they also made sure that I kind of stayed on the straight and narrow, and um, the rest is history. You know, Brian, such an amazing story, and a story I've heard so many times over the years from so many great athletes who have to make those choices and those decisions, and you don't want to forget about who you are or where you're from, and you certainly don't want to act like you're better than anybody else, but you have to make those tough choices. Stan was great. I remember I was there when Stan was there, and he had this, you know, he had this great charisma, this great it. I would argue that maybe Stan wasn't hanging out like you and I were at 6,500 DP, (laughs) but we we all have to make these choices. Listen, I I would say, Brian, that one of the highlights of my entire career, and I'm not not making this about me, but I think that you can relate to this, and I've, I've done this long enough that I've pretty much have covered everything and anything in professional sports, but one of the highlights of my whole career, literally, was being courtside when Jerry Tarkanian and the running Rebs would roll into our Thunderdome. What do you remember about those games when UNLV came in and you all went up against the likes of Larry Johnson, Greg Anthony, Anderson Hunt, et al., the energy of the building and everything that came along with it? Well, I remember that it was different when we played against uh, UNLV. And in my junior year, they beat us um, in both places, in Vegas and uh, in Santa Barbara at the Thunderdome. But I remember the energy being level and how hyped up the students were. And, um, you know, my senior year, the two times that we faced them, we beat them, uh, we beat them both times. I remember having a triple-double against them both times in, in Vegas and in, in Santa Barbara. But the, particularly in Santa Barbara, the fact that the students actually lined up outside and camped out the night before um, to be able to get into the gym to have a seat to see the show that was going to be put on was really special, um, special to me. And it gave myself and my teammates um, you know, that feeling that we didn't want to let them down. And, you know, a lot of people don't, if they don't know about the tradition, and I don't even know if it still goes on at Santa Barbara, but at that time, um, we pretty much started out every game at a deficit because we would get a technical at the, at the beginning of every game. When we scored our first basket, all the students would bring a roll of toilet paper and throw it out on the floor. And um, so we get a tech called, you know, the other team would make the free throw and, you know, we'd give a point away, basically. I know they changed it later on. They started throwing, I think, tortilla shells instead of toilet paper. But, um, you know, those are all special moments that I remember. I remember Saturday afternoon games that we would play um, that would be on television. They would bring in a kind of a tarp on one end of the floor um, and set up like a volleyball net. The students would come in and kind of, you know, some sand and, and, and it would be like a, like the beach was inside, um, you know. And so I had friends around the country that went to different schools that, you know, where it snowed or they were in the city or they just didn't have a pretty campus. And, 
And, you know, every day for us to be, and you know this, for us to be able to, uh, you know, look out our windows, walk down the street and see the ocean and, uh, and the beach and the palm trees and, you know, uh, the, the girls and, you know, just everything that went along with that. And that's where we were getting an education. That's where we were able to play basketball on a highly compatible, competitive level. Um, and, and just have fun while we were handling our business. There's nothing better to, better to me than that. Man, I get goosebumps. I mean, I could do this for hours. I could talk to you about this and nothing else for hours and hours and hours, so i got to pick my spots. Let me just ask, do you stay in touch with any of the guys you played with back then? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Character Hart, uh, Carlton Davenport, Brian Vons, uh, Eric MacArthur, Chris, I mean, uh, uh, Gary Gray, um, you know, all the guys that were my teammates and even some of the ones that came after, cause I still, you know, uh, still when I would be in town or whatever, you know, follow the team. Um, and especially my years when I was with the Lakers later on, uh, still would make it up, you know, to one or two games a season when the schedule permitted for me to be able to come and watch, um, you know, and follow the team. And, and even now, you know, I, I haven't been able to, uh, to get there. Uh, to watch games in the last couple of years, but I know that you know they're 17 and four, I believe, right now, and I think 13 and three or something like that in conference, 12 and three, 13 and three, and in first place right now. So, uh, you know, kudos to them for kind of getting the program back on track and, and playing at a at a at a high level, um, you know. And so uh, it's nice to 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 see that once again and. I just don't – maybe it's because the academic part is so hard to get in. Uh, I don't understand why more people wouldn't want to go to a school like that with all that it has to offer. Hey, preach, 100%. You and, I, you and I both know that for sure. And I can't say how much I appreciate you indulging me like that. Gaucho fam, Gaucho Nation will love to hear you talking about school. Brian, a couple things before you go, though. Let's talk about the Lakers. For instance, I want to ask you about Kobe because you played – you won three championships playing with Kobe, and then you won two more coaching him as a member of Phil Jackson's staff. And I think that even to this day, when a lot of folks think about Kobe's passing, we're still in shock, we're still numb, we're sad. I know for a fact that when you're asked about him, you always smile, you're always happy. I'm curious, why is that, and how are you able to process something that tragic in such a manner? Well, you know, my... You know, a lot of people don't probably realize, but my relationship with Kobe goes back to when he was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, and I was playing over in Italy uh, against his father and uh, Jelly Bean. And I met Kobe, you know, uh, over there. Uh, I was playing in Rome. His father was playing for a team in Reggio Emilia. And um, so we would get together, you know, the American players that were there, would get together, uh, you know, whenever we played against each other, you know, we basically be a, spend the whole weekend in that town. And um, so I got to know him and his family, you know, like I said, when he was at a very young age. And then fast forward to his junior year of high school, I was in the finals with the Orlando Magic going against the Houston Rockets, and his father brought him to a game in Orlando. And by this time, he had grown to be – same height as me you know about six six and uh i hadn't seen him since he was this 11 year old kid and he he said to me after i finish my senior year next year i'm gonna jump straight into the nba and i just kind of just laughed it off like sure okay kid and um and i remember seeing his press conference of him saying that he was going to bypass college and go straight into the nba and um you know a year later he was on the Lakers and I was playing against him. Um, and, you know, just, you know, then a few years after, a couple years after, two years maybe after that, we were on teams together and, uh, you know, won back to back to back championships as, as teammates. And then obviously two more uh, as I coached him. And so um, over all of those years and all the things that we did together on and off the court um, and then even watching his transition from you know from player to after basketball what he was doing with his daughter and her team and just his endeavors uh, his business endeavors um, we still stayed connected 
and um, and he still allowed me to be a part of that. And with all the things that I had dealt with myself, you know, my, my family, my mother, father, and sister passing in a car accident back in 93, um, and that was my whole family. You know, I've dealt with tragedy and, you know, just death and dying and tremendous loss. Um, so I learned probably from that that when people are here and they're in your life and they're present, that you need to do things with them to while they're here, right? You create those type of memories. And I did that with Kobe while he was here. I can remember so many things from him as an 11-year-old kid to when he was uh, 18 years old, you know, 17, 18, coming into the NBA, to when he was uh, number eight Kobe that I played with, um, you know, in his early 20s, to number 24 Kobe that I coached um, as he got into his 30s. And, you know, so we created memories during that time. So when I think of him, I don't think of, you know, my mother used to always tell me, when I die, don't cry, um, throw a party and celebrate my life. And I feel like while he was alive, we were celebrating his life and making memories. And so that's why I smile when I think about him or somebody, you know, I mean, I've had my share of crying too, but. When I think about him, it makes me smile because, you know, winning those championships and spraying champagne, smoking cigars, uh, watching him turn into a husband and a father and um, and just succeed in life, I was there along the way. So it, it can't I can't help but smile because we had so many moments where where we succeeded and got to the pinnacle um, and and we're smiling side by side. You want to hear something amazing. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit on how much you can earn. How amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you consider all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. I want to be so sensitive and respectful when I ask this. I've always, I remember when I first heard about your folks and your sister, and I just thought it was like the most horrific thing I'd ever heard. And I mentioned this, I mean, it is in and of itself, it's, it's tragic, but like you were one of those people, you worked so hard and you tried so hard and in part because you wanted to help your family and you bought your folks a house and you bought your dad a car and they were ultimately going to Vegas. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it except to acknowledge that, that you did these things for them. And then they died tragically in a car accident going to that home. You actually blamed yourself for a while, didn't you? Like, how did you process that? How did you get through that? Yeah, I did because, um, you know, you in those situations, you, you kind of beat yourself up naturally. Like I, I, I said to myself, if I hadn't have bought him that new car and if I hadn't have bought them that house in Vegas, they wouldn't have been driving it down there to um they wouldn't have been driving it down there to and the accident would have never happened. Right? So I put that on me um initially early on. Um but, you know, once again I just uh I was able to kind of get through that because one, because the only person that survived the accident was my niece, um, who was 11 months old at the time. And her child seat was what protected her and saved her in the accident. And so I knew that now my new purpose was to be there for her. And so, you know, I became her legal guardian and, uh, took care of her the rest of her life. She's 28 now, thriving, doing well. She graduated from college back in 2015, um, raised her just like a daughter, um, you know, to my two kids that I have with my wife, um, who are 19 and 21. And um, so, you know, once again, while my parents and my sister were here, we lived 
and we did things together. Like they, they came down to the games in Santa Barbara when I was playing, you know, to, uh, you know, on the weekends, you know, to every game that we played at home. And just all my travels, you know, um, you know, when I played with the U.S. team, I won a gold medal in, in Madrid in 1986. You know, my dad was able to come and witness that. And just some of the things that I was able to do, do for them, to kind of pay them back for always being there and being supportive of me through my whole journey um, was us living and being in the present and doing things together. And so from the Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners, sitting around the table, telling stories and, you know, what have you, like when people are gone, that's the only thing that you have to rely on and to fall back on when they're not here anymore. And so, you know, I don't have any regrets. You know, obviously I'm saddened by the fact that they were kind of taken away um, before their time. But, you know, I've, I know a lot of people who have experienced tragedy and they weren't as close. They didn't live and make memories while their loved one who passed away, you know, were here and they regret that, right? And so, you know, for me, like, even though their life lives were shortened, I still feel like we had a full life together because we, you know, we did everything while they were here, if that makes sense. It does. And, and I am so, I'm so happy that you and I could talk about your family like that and that you could talk about your family like that because I think the message itself is so, so important. And, you know, frankly, I've always been just really leery of bringing it up because I, I just thought it was such a difficult thing even to talk about. And I've had a lot of hard conversations with a lot of people, but I've always been so leery to even ask you about that. And I'm so glad you and I could talk about that and you could share your thoughts about your family. So I appreciate that. See, like the thing is, Brian, you've always been a guy who led from the front always. And to the point where even when you were at the Lakers, when Kobe and Shaq did not see eye to eye, you were the guy who often mediated between the two of them. Before you go, there is that absolutely incredible story about when the two of them were really getting after each other in the media and Phil had had enough and Mitch Kupchik had had enough and pulled them both aside and said, guys, stop, stop. We're not having this anymore. The next time one of you says something about the other, we're going to find you the max. Well, no sooner than they said that, and I'm going to be really transparent, Brian, although you couldn't really pick, I was always a Kobe guy more than a Shaq guy. But Kobe, <laughs> okay. I mean, Kobe... Kobe immediately goes out after they told them, stop doing it, and did an interview with Jim Gray. For those who do not know, what did he tell Jim Gray, and then what happened? He told Jim Gray basically that, you know, he busted his ass every day, uh, you know, in the offseason and what have you, working out to come back in shape, and that he basically called Shaq a fat ass and said he was lazy and that if he worked as hard as if Shaq had worked hard as hard as he did, um, they would be unstoppable, you know, basically. And so he did that right after the meeting with Phil and Mitch uh, when they told them to cut it out. And so I was actually, that was the year that I had retired. So I was at home in Oakland um, and I was, just, I was in the capacity of a scout for the Lakers and, the first person that called me was Devin George, um, who was on the team still. And he said, hey, uh, Shaq is, said he's going to beat up, beat Kobe up tomorrow morning as soon as on site when he sees him. And he was like, kiss the wife and kids. You're the only one that can get down here and, and put a stop to this. And, um, and then I got a call later on from Phil Jackson asking me if I could come down and, and try to get those two on, uh, together because the next day was the first game of the season. Um, and that was the year that Gary Payton and Carl Malone had joined the team. And um, Kobe wasn't even going to be able to play anyway because he was coming off of knee surgery. But anyway, I, I jumped on the plane, the 7 o'clock flight that next morning from Oakland, um, on Southwest, got in about 8.15, took a cab to the practice facility. And when I got there, uh, Shaq was already in the parking lot waiting for Kobe to come. Now, practice didn't start until 10.30, but he was already there like 8.30 in the morning. Wow. So when he saw me get out of the cab, he, he said, what are you doing here? You're not going to be able to stop what I'm going to do to him when I see him. 
And so, you know, we probably stood there for about 15 minutes and I just, you know, tried to calm him down. And I was like, look, let's just, why don't you just go in the, um, in the, the film room and wait, um, you know, and, and let's just talk, let's just all talk it out when we get in there. So his security guy was able to usher him into the film room. And then Kobe came, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes later and I said to him, I said, hey, big fella, just I don't want you to get blindsided, but the big fella uh, is not too happy with you. And he said he's going to whoop your ass when he see, on sight when he sees you. I just want to let you know that. So typical Kobe, he looked at me and kind of sarcastically said, ooh, I'm scared. And so uh, it started laughing. And so I told him, I said, hey, you know, this is this is for real. Now, I then immediately thought, now, I have gotten into uh, a scuffle with Shaq before. And um, so I thought to myself, if Shaq charges him, there's no way that I'm going to be able to hold him off uh, of Kobe. So I got Carl Malone, Gary Payton, and Horace Grant, who was also on the team, to come in the room with me to sit in between these guys to make sure that Shaq didn't, didn't jump on him. And then we just had probably a 45-minute conversation where they both, you know, got out what they needed to say to each other. Um, and then I just tried to make the point that, look, you know, Gary Payton sacrificed a lot of money to come here and play with you guys and try to win a championship, and so did Carl Malone. And you guys are making it about each other. And I said, but let me tell you what, what I think. I won three championships with both of you guys. And that fourth year when we were trying to get back at the end of the season when we didn't make it, um, you both said that the team needed to get younger and more athletic. And what that did was it meant that that was the end of basketball for me. And so they didn't bring me back and they didn't bring Robert Ory back. And we were two guys that were in the trenches with you guys for, for, for three back-to-back to back championships and once again it was because of you guys only thinking about yourselves and so um so I think that kind of resonated resonated with them a little bit but they were able to make amends in that meeting um with the aid of you know those other guys being in there but I you know I think they both I was probably one of the guys you know usually people pick the side right they were either a Kobe guy or a Shaq guy I, I had a great relationship and still do with Shaq to this day and did, you know, all the way up until Kobe passed away with him because of the fact that I always kept it real and I was honest with both of them. So if they were messing up, I was going to let them know. And then there would be times, like I said, Shaq and I scuffled before. Um, Kobe went, you know, would get mad at me and not talk to me for a couple of days, but they always knew that what I said to them was from the heart and it was going to be the truth. And so that's how I was able to have a great relationship with both of them, and I didn't have to choose a side. It's an all-time NBA story. And what's amazing, Brian, to me is, like, Phil Jackson, the Zen master, the guy who was brilliant for managing unbelievable personalities and strong-willed guys, that he got on the phone and said, I need help with this. Like, he couldn't handle that himself. He needed you to take care of that. Yeah, I mean, it he always told me and uh, the other assistant coaches, uh, one, well, one in particular, Tex Winter and um, Frank Hamlin, who was on the staff, they always said during that, during that time when I was there that I was, uh, you know, the leader of the team, even though, you know, Shaq and Kobe were the stars, they were the captains, um, you know, what have you. But they always said that everybody respected me um, and kind of followed you know, followed me, that I settled everybody down. And so, um, you know, like I said, I had relationships, you know, to this day, Mark Madsen is one of my favorite teammates. Um, we, we talk all the time. He's a coach, head coach at, uh, at Utah Valley State. Love that. Um, love that, dude. I love and, that. Yeah, you know, and so, like, I could go to the movies with Mad Dog. I could go, you know, uh, go out to a club, you know, with Shaq. Or I could go have dinner with Kobe, um, you know. So across the board, you know, I was just kind of the guy that, you know, 
they, they got along with everybody and, and they respected that. And I think Phil and our coaches always recognized that. And so when Phil hired me as a coach, he always said to me, you know, look, I trust you and your instincts on the basketball court. So when you're, when you're sitting next to me on the bench, I want you to think out loud and tell me what you see. And, um, and I would do that. And sometimes he would listen and sometimes he would tell me to shut the F up. Um, you know, because I was breaking his thought process and, you know, what have you, but I was just doing what, you know, I did what he asked me to do. And I know that he always trusted, and like I said, trusted my instincts. And so, um, you know, that's why, that's how that was all able to work out. Yeah, that's how it always was. That's how it always was. When you played in college, when we would go up against North Carolina state or UNLV and all hell was breaking loose, man, you were always so calm and always processing everything. And even when you got to the NBA and started with the Celtics, I always felt that way when I watched you too, even if you were learning, let me finally ask you this. I talked to Kenny Anderson, Brian, last week on this pod. I had God mm-hmm. Sham got on a few weeks back. We were talking about the great New York City point guards and the brand of ball that they played back there on the streets. I want to ask you something. This the same kind of thing. Like, those were incredible ballers, but you also come from an area in Oakland where there were amazing, amazing players, especially in the backcourt. You, Jay Kidd, Gary Payton, Damian Lillard, the list goes on. So finally, how would you compare like Oakland ballers of the day? How do they measure up and compare and contrast with New York City point guards? I, I, I'll put. I'm, I'm so glad you asked me that, and I won't just leave it to point guards. Sure. I'll, I'll say this: um, everywhere I go, um, and I've done work as an analyst with NBA TV. Um, there's always a debate with the guys as ter- in terms of where the best basketball comes from. Um, Jalen Jalen Rose and Isaiah Thomas will say, you know, deep. Isaiah Thomas will say Chicago. Jalen Rose and Chris Weber will say Detroit. Um, you know, guys will Reggie Miller will say L.A. But I always point out to them per capita, right, Oakland has less than 400,000 people. And per capita, what Oakland has been able to produce, not just in basketball in the NBA, but across sports field in general and even entertainment whatever you want to look at and i i can just real briefly go uh, down a list right going back from bill russell paul silas joe morgan uh kurt flood beta pinson first of all kurt um, kurt flood beta pinson and bill russell and frank robinson were all on the same high school team that's 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 incredible that that is absolutely incredible and and Bill Russell was the first black head coach in the NBA. Frank Robinson was the first black manager in Major League Baseball. So I can't help but think that from watching that and being a student of the game, that somehow that has influenced me to believe that I could be a coach in the NBA, you know, a black head coach in, in the NBA. But, but I'm going to keep going down the list. All right, so I said Paul Silas. Uh, Joe Morgan, Ricky Henderson, Dave Stewart, Dontrell Willis, um, CeCe Sabathia, um, you mentioned Gary Payton, J.R. Ryder, J. Kidd, Leon Poe, um, Antonio Davis, Greg Foster, um, um, Too Short, Keisha Cole, Tony, 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 In Vogue, um, Clint Eastwood, John Brody, Tom Hanks, um, Marshawn Lynch, Marcus Peters. I can go, we can sit here for hours, and I, I will forget more names than, uh, than, I will re- than I can remember. And this is all, these are all people that were produced out of this little city of Oakland, right? And not only, uh, like, if you count, championship rings, all-star appearances, uh, Hall of Fame, uh, guys that are in the Hall of Fame, I put Oakland up per capita against any city in the world in terms of what it's been able to produce. I'll just leave it at that. 
Brian, I mean, we'll leave it at that or we'll be here all day because you just mentioned <laughs> there, there are probably a dozen guys on that list that I want to talk to you about so badly. I mean, these are amazing, not just athletes, but like personalities, personas, like incredible people, at least a dozen of them. Leave me with one last one then. What about J.R. Ryder? When he came to the Lakers... Kobe had a way of kind of testing and measuring everybody. And you know JR, man. JR was a different cat altogether. How did Kobe test JR Ryder when he first got there? Well, everybody who came, you know, every each year they would bring in, you know, a free agent or two. One year was Mitch Richmond, one year was Jimmy Jackson and Aaron McKee, uh, Lindsey Hunter. But this in two thousand one they brought in J.R. Ryder uh to the team and Anytime that happened, Kobe would feel like he needed to make sure that everybody understood the pecking order of the team. And so, you know, Jr. was a, a, a good player and a star in his own right, you know, in terms of the teams that he had played for, Minnesota and Atlanta, before he got to the Lakers and Portland, I should say, as well. And um, so one day in practice, you know, they, they were going at it, and – JR scored on Kobe and was, you know, talking some stuff. And Kobe challenged him after the game. He said, Me and you one on I mean after practice, me and you one on one. And Phil kind of said, JR, be careful what you ask for and JR kinda went off, I ain't no punk. I I gave you buckets when I was in Portland, when I was in Minnesota and this, that and the other. Great. So we all just pulled up chairs on the sideline and they played one-on-one and they played about five games and Kobe just absolutely destroyed JR in front of everybody. And so we were just sitting over on the sideline laughing and, you know, just yelling out, yeah, be careful what you ask for. And he got so mad that he came over to the sideline and basically challenged, like, you know, challenged everybody to fight him right there on the spot. Because Kobe had, like I said, just absolutely demolished him. Um, but that was something that we were accustomed to seeing because Kobe had done that with each each new player that came. You know, later on it was, you know, when Ron Artest came to the team. I mean, it was kind of the same thing. He just had to let them know that I'm the alpha dog. I'm the top of the pecking order. Um, you know, here and that was his way of doing it. But everybody who was on that team, Ron Harper. Um, you know, we were all on the sideline, you know, watching and just laughing, and, and um, we still laugh about it to this day. Man, what a great story. I love Ron Harper. What a great player, man. He was so, so good. So good. It, but if I keep doing this, Brian, you'll never get back to the Ignite or anything else. <laughs> Listen, I, I was so looking forward to getting caught up with you. I so appreciate you. You are gaucho royalty. But just really good to get caught up, Brian, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you and the relationship. And so good to have you on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, let me just say to you, you know, thank you for having me on. We got to definitely do this again. I know our schedules get busy and, and, um, you know, we get pulled in different directions. But, you know, you've told me over the years how proud you are of of me. Now it's my turn. You know, I'm, I'm proud of you. Like we come from, you know, from from the same school the same type of experiences while we were there. Um, I followed you and your rise, um, you know, from the beginning to, you know, to where you are now and watched you pivot. Um, and I don't want to say recreate yourself because you've always been who you are, but, you know, go from one platform to another um, and still remain relevant and still make all of us uh, who are gauchos proud of what you've done. And, um, you know, so as much as far back as I can go, you know, from fifth grade, you know, being around Gary Payton and uh, Jay Kidd and the guys that I grew up in, grew up with in Oakland, um, I'm proud of you as well for what you've been able to accomplish and do and, and the name that you've been able to make for yourself and, um, and, and to make Gaucho Nation uh, proud. My man, it's probably as high a compliment and praise that I could ever recall getting. And it is in and of itself, and it is because of how highly I think of you, Brian. Thank you so much for saying that. And mutual respect and love, man. Let's do it again soon, and I really do appreciate you very much. Sounds good. Appreciate it, man. Take care, Jim. 
Hey, listen, are you craving some protein after a good workout? I'm guessing you are. This time, don't make a shake, do not eat a bar, reach for a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper instead. Why Old Trapper? I'll tell you why. Number one, it's tasty, it's tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it's a family-owned business that takes their business extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. On top of that, who wants dried, rough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper is the real deal. It comes in four amazing flavors. Old-fashioned, teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy. So the next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for it in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying that way. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper or What's Your Beef. No lie, one of my favorite conversations ever. A grip of thanks to Gaucho Royalty, Gaucho Fam, Brian Shaw. That was so fun. And the part at the very end means the absolute world to me. Really appreciate the words. Can't wait to run my guy down again in the near future. Hey, listen, while you're here, make sure you lock in the totally free subscription so you get every future episode automatically sent right to your device. And if you have a second, can you leave a review? Because that goes a long way in getting this thing in front of more people. Thank you very much for doing that, too. Back next week with episode 166. But in the meantime, let me roll some tape on my answering machine. First new message. Hey, Jim. This is Seth Jeff at Southfield. Being snack off season. And while I'm sitting here eating American cheese on my microwave popcorn, I just want to say I'm going to beat Vision Corona and right in Redondo Beach while they trying to go out looking for chicks in a Hyundai. I'm out. Message deleted. Next message. What's up, Ann Smack? This is Sexy Rexy in New Mexi. I loved your interview of that New York Times bestselling food critic and hearing his insights on Taco Bell and the fourth meal, or as I like to call it, the prelude to my fourth round of squeezing out my own packet of fire sauce. Smell you later, Jimmy. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, Justin, and Melbourne. Your new gloss on Johnny in Texas, calling him Josh in Detroit, is kind of an insult to Josh. But I'm just curious how Johnny does his rating scale, because he always talks about being with 10. The way I look at it, I mean, yeah, if you're hanging out with a 4, and then a 3 and a 3 two days later. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Rome. We've been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. Please call us back at 1-800. Message deleted. Next message. Yes, this is Ken Milwaukee. I would just like to congratulate J.J. Watt on his new contract with the Arizona Cardinals. A lot of sports writers were surprised that he signed with the Cards. But if he was here visiting Pewaukee, Wisconsin last month, it was zero degrees, wind chill 30 below, and two feet out on the snow. Who cares who the coach is or who the quarterback is or who if they have no chance to get to the Super Bowl? Getting over $30 million to play there was a great move. To be a snowbird in your early 30s, I wish I could have done that. I'm out. Message saved. You have no more messages.